Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. G'day and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode, goodness me, by now, I think we're up to episode 87. Yeah, 87. Wow, thanks so much for being here. You can subscribe to the show to make sure you never miss an episode uh, in iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. Also, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on more Instagram these days than Twitter. Uh, you can also get on the emailing list at osherginsberg.com and write me email, send Osher email at gmail.com or just write back to the mail out that I send every single week. Thank you so much for being here. I uh, hope your week was was good. I hope uh, whatever you did was good. Today we're speaking with legendary filmmaker Jack McCoy. He's a surf filmmaker and pretty much defined a genre. Um, yeah, but uh, we will uh, we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit more in a moment. This week was good for me, mostly good for me. We're working very, very hard on, on shooting TV, which is a very interesting. We've got, um, we've got a house full of boys at the moment, um, which is also very interesting, very different to a house full of girls. Uh, fascinating from an anthropological perspective, watching all the guys interact with each other that's that's for sure i uh to check in with you i got triggered by some stuff this week which you know i seem to be telling you every week but this week was a bit kind of different it was stuff from a long long time ago some family stuff uh but it was a really over the top reaction and it felt really uncomfortable and really yucky so i uh as with most things that don't go right with me i take it to my doctor not necessarily they all don't have to be mechanical or physical they can be upstairs so i took it to my doctor and she was very uh, very helpful. She described that, that when I get hit off like that, when I get flooded with those emotions, the amount of feeling that I'm having that actually is associated with that moment or that trigger or with what somebody said is probably only about 5%, maybe 10% of the total amount of emotion that I'm feeling. The other 95% of stuff that I'm feeling is all stuff collected from my past. So that when that little thing comes up, the tiny little thing that someone mentioned or something I see, I feel everything from the 31 years since it happened, you know, just get flooded by all of it. 
And so knowing that was good. Didn't take away the pain or the anger or the fear, but it allowed me to look at the truth of the situation. So I was able to go, okay, so I might be feeling 5,000 shades of shit, but only two of those belong to this moment and this person or this thing. So I can deal with this in this rational, appropriate response. And anyway, so I found that helpful this week. It was good. Uh, we had a great night last night. We surprised a small one, um, took her to go see Les Mis, uh, which is showing in Sydney at the moment, Les Miserables, the, uh, the new revival production, which was uh, absolutely incredible. Yeah, it was absolutely bonkers. Uh, I was impressed with everything about the show, uh, mostly not only the performances, which we'll talk about in a moment, but there's so much set movement on this show. I really got the idea that they must have done a, you know so many years of, months of, of performance rehearsals and then lighting rehearsals and then probably spent about two weeks just figuring out how they could all move around the stage and not get killed by moving pieces of set because like whole buildings will fly in for two lines of dialogue and then whole buildings will fly back out again. It was exceptional, an exceptional, exceptional production. Most of all, the lead Jean Valjean was played by a performer by the name of Simon Gleason and holy moly. I haven't seen a live performer like that in a long, long, long time. The range of that role from a young, powerful, bitter prisoner to an old, old, old man, songs that require him to be lifting the roof off with notes to super, super soft harmonizing with two little girls singing next to him. Incredible range of performance. It's astonishing range of emotion. This guy's a, oh man, I just, I, I was, it was breathtaking. That's the only way I can describe it. It was absolutely incredible. Um, so to be able to see a performer so effortlessly be in their element. I mean, obviously the guy's you know probably worth 35 years of his life to get there. I don't think he's that old, but yeah, he's worked very, very, very hard. And so last night I saw him at the top of his game and it was just, man, it was just incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Um, yeah. Anyway, I know they're playing a few more um, months in Sydney and then they're heading up to Brisbane. If you do get a chance, it's worth it. And uh, it also makes um, small 11-year-olds who have a a fancy for performing um, get very excited. So that was also pretty awesome. Let me tell you about my guest today. Uh, It was a great honor to speak with this man. My guest today is Jack McCoy, a surfing filmmaker. You can follow him on Instagram at Jack McCoy, M-C-C-O-Y, Aloha. So he's at Jack McCoy, Aloha, all one word. Jack McCoy is unquestionably one of the greatest surf filmmakers of all time, easily. From his earliest work, Tubular Swells, which was his first film, through to A Deeper Shade of Blue, which was uh, his most recent film. Jack, he's not only captured moments in surfing that define the sport, but was also pretty much, he was a pioneer in techniques and locations, shooting on film, difficult conditions, no autofocus, no follow focus or manual wind-up cameras. He describes how much it was to shoot footage. I mean, now you can just roll on your iPhone on 10 minutes and get, you know, something amazing. That would have cost 12 grand back in the day. Um, That's 12 grand, 1975 money. Uh, He, you know, speaks with such gravity about what they were doing. And he was often shooting in... And being, he was often the first person to shoot 
in some incredibly remote and often quite dangerous locations in uh, developing parts of the world, which are now enormously overdeveloped, but he does talk a bit about that. Jack is a native Hawaiian who made his home in Australia. And it was in his home that he and I spoke about his early days on the windward side of Oahu. We spoke about the profound effect that when he was a kid, he met not only Bruce Brown, the guy that made Endless Summer and various other surf films, but he also met Duke Kahanamoko. And he met both these people when he was quite young. And that had just a huge effect upon him. And he also speaks at great detail about that day at Chopu with Laird Hamilton in 2000. And also for him, what it means to spread the spirit of aloha. Jack is, as you'll hear in his tone of voice and his cadence, he's very laid back, very mellow, very wise, very deep man. There's a lot of wisdom here. There's a lot of nerdy filmmaking stuff here and there's a lot of adventure here. So come with me up to, towards Summer Bay up in Sydney there on a very windy afternoon for a cup of tea with Jack McCoy. Jack, this is amazing, firstly. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to see you, my friend. It's, it's been way too long. It's been way too long. <laughs> We discussed as I walked in, a lot's happened since I saw you last, mate. Um, but for folks who are listening, where how, how could you describe best where we are? Um, well, kind of right below us to our left, if we walked down through a couple of friends' houses here, we would end up on what's called Paradise Beach. So I like to think that I live above paradise <laughs> in a tree house. It sure is. We're in the treetops of the eucalypts in the north of Sydney, far north. Yeah. The, uh, the gentleman who did the renovation architecture on this house is named Peter Stutchbury. Peter's mm -hmm. a very well-known architect. And he said, I, this was just a little 1952 beach shack, right? A little shoebox. And uh, my wife got to know Peter and he said he'd be happy to do a reno on our place for us. And when he did, he kind of wanted, he said, you're a big guy. I want you to feel like it's a big house, even though it's all very small. So what he did was he raised the ceiling in the middle of the place. And he said, I want you to feel like you're living in a tree house, but everywhere you look, you can see trees. And if you kind of look around there, the living room here, it's got lovely view everywhere you go of, of trees, you know, and you can see them. So uh, thank you, Peter, and thank you, Linesman, and thank you, Bob Boy. It's pretty for... glorious. Is that Scotland Island over there? Scotland Island's over there to your left. Yeah. Uh, that's Lubbock Bay. Yeah. I cycle a lot on the other side of that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I cycle a lot over there. True we shot, we, shot, we shot the first season of uh, Bachelor. On the top of that cliff over there no at, C way. at Seaforth. Yeah, that's where the house was. No way. Yeah. Oh, well, you should have come by more often, man. Oh, it was, you know how it is. Like it, it's four or five K as the crow flies, but it's an hour and a half to drive it. So, yeah, we have uh, Portuguese beach up here that we can see to the north and just sort of a, a great view uh, for those of you who are watching us speak. Um, <laughs> of uh Karingai National Park and Pitwater. Yeah. 
I so, love I love riding through there. Actually, that's my uh, that's my my other home. Your bike ride. Yeah, my bicycle. It's uh, pretty good. We're uh, but we're a long way from where you grew up, aren't we? It is a few miles, <laughs> about nine hours as the crow flies. Um, I it doesn't today. It doesn't seem that bad, you know. I love to uh, obviously go home to Hawaii, where my roots are. I the the flights I fly Hawaiian Airlines, and I have a nice dinner before I got on the plane. And when the minute I get on the plane, I feel like I'm in Hawaii, and I you know, watch a movie and go to sleep and wake up in Honolulu the next morning and go have my breakfast. So my stomach clock is sort of in a little better rhythm. And uh, when you come home, you leave Hawaii real early in the morning and you fly all day and you get here at seven o'clock in time to go get home and go unpack and go to bed. So the, the time difference and everything between going home and back is not that big a deal for me. And, uh, you know, I still call Hawaii my home. And that's where my friends and family are. And, but this is this is my big island that I get to enjoy. <laughs> and I uh, came here in 1970 for a world surfing contest and really fell in love with Australia. I kind of had a gut full of Hawaii by the time I got out of school. And uh, just, you know, there was a lot of localism issues with Howie's and not with my Hawaiian friends, but with a lot of other people and things. Just for, for folks who don't know, that that's a word that some would, would is it a derogatory word? Howley? Yeah. Yeah. Howley is a white guy. Hmm. Um, often referred to as a sucking Howley <laughs> or called a lot worse. And it's understandable, you know, the white man turned up and said, you guys can't sit around and go surfing and, enjoy this beautiful island you got to go to work right so they put all the hawaiians to work and then pretty soon they're there just laying down and enjoying life and that uh, kind of took over what hawaii is and really one of the cultural last of the cultural gifts that hawaii gave to the world which was surfing in the 70s it became very bitter to uh, the local Hawaiians about the Howley or the white guy and them coming over and, you know, taking their waves as white things got crowded and, and difficult. And I was sort of in the forefront of just right on the edge of that when I came to Australia. And I was, you know, I came here and it was like you could drive for more than two hours, like you did in Hawaii, you go around the island in two hours. And here you go for two hours and you still haven't seen the same thing. And it was really a big experience for me. When you were a, when you were a kid, from what I know about the place, you, you were on Oahu, but you were on the windward side. When you were a kid, people weren't really surfing the North Shore, were they? Oh, yeah. They were? Oh, yeah. Because the films would have you believe that nobody was. Yeah. Well, what happened was is that most of the – Surfing, you know, the resurrection of surfing after the missionaries around the turn of the century, all focused in Waikiki. And then some of the early surfing pioneers from Waikiki started to go out to Makaha. And from there, they ventured occasionally to the North Shore and surf Sunset Beach. 
if you've been to either of those places, the two waves are very different. Uh, one is a lot more organized and lined up as a point break. The other is sort of a shifting peak that's very challenging to line up and, and figure out how to surf. So Sunset was not really the, the most popular place, the North Shore, to go surf. Haleiwa was another spot they surfed in the early days, and that would be in the late 30s. Um, and then in the early 50s, uh, late 40s and early 50s, California surfers started coming over and started hitting the North Shore a lot more. And, gee, you know, I'd just been born. <laughs> so anyway, the, the reality is, is that, yeah, they were surfing on the North Shore uh, well and truly before I was born. Do you remember the first time you got up there? To the North Shore? Oh, yeah. Yeah. My mom had a little Vauxhall station wagon and took a, we, they had the, these sort of news alerts, high surf on the North Shore, you know, so we begged our mom to let us teach school one day and she took us out there and we went out to Wimbia Bay, it was breaking and there were a bunch of surfers out there and it was a real show. Never forget it. And the shore break uh, was just awesome and mean. Some of the early surfing magazines, John Severson shot the Waimea shore break, so it had a reputation in our minds already. And just seeing the big waves and being a part of that whole little circus for the day was uh, something that a bunch of Grammys never forgot. And uh, occasionally we'd go out, you know, from time to time whenever the surf was up. My mom loved to chauffeur us around. She was happy to, to take you off school and do that sort of thing? Oh, yeah. So what was school for you then? <laughs> it's really funny. In the sixth grade there in America, they do an aptitude test of you, which is uh, sort of a, it's a multiple choice of four different A, B, C, or D. And you, you know, it asks you a question you have to make with a lead pencil in between these two little lines about what answer you think it is. And the surf was really good. I'm like, you know, how old are you in sixth grade? I'm not sure about 11 or 12. And I, uh, I was desperate to get to the beach and I figured if I got my test done quickly, I'd, I'd be able to get out and get down to the beach. So I just ripped through the whole test without reading a question and I just alternated A, B, C, or D on the four pages, put my paper down and said, I'm done. And he said, fine, you wait for the others to finish. So basically when it came back for the uh, placement of where I would go to intermediate school, I was always in the kind of, you know, the extremely low intelligent group. And the teachers are always scratching their head going, how'd this guy get here, you know? And I kind of loved it because I didn't have to do much work. And as soon as the bell rang, man, I was racing off to the beach and I just lived at the beach. The beach was all I wanted to do. And then in my, after my intermediate school, we went to uh, the other side of the island, lived on the southeast shore of Oahu between Diamond Head and Cocoa Head. And it was, um, God, it was heaven after you know, growing up my whole life on the windward side where it blows on shore 
95% of the time, all of a sudden the Northeast trades were grooming the surf. And boy, oh boy, did that get my attention, you know, clean waves and ran into some really cool guys. I, I went to school with guys like Randy Rarick and Reno Abalera and Jerry Lopez and Jeff Hackman. And you went to high school with Jerry Lopez? Well, they went to another school, but they lived around the corner from us. But, you know, we all knew and surfed with each other. Uh, Randy and I went to Kalani. Jerry went to Punahou. Reno came to, to uh, Kalani with us. But there were a whole bunch of, you know, I can rattle off a bunch of names that won't mean anything to people, but in Hawaii, they're sort of, were the hottest surfers in the islands, you know, at the time. And boy, when the surf is good on the North Shore some days, you'd, you'd go through the absentee list and we'd all be gone. <laughs> you know? We'd all just take off that day. What would you be listening to, the AM radio, the weather report? Is that what it was in the morning? Well, you, you got word. Yeah. You know? Um, it's not like you just sit in your bed with an alarm that says, oh, alert me when it's over three foot and the wind's going this no, no, way. <laughs> well and truly before any surf reports or... You know, the Weather Bureau at the time used to give high surf advisories, so they had an idea when the storms were going to generate some waves, roughly, because it affected a lot of the residents when the surf got monstrous, you know, so they had to be able to figure that out. But really, you kind of had an idea, you know, when the northeast trades were going to be really light and clean, you know, you'd just burn out to the country after school and, and get out there for an hour's worth of surf. And it'd be magic, you know, really beautiful conditions. And then you'd drive back home, get home late, and your mom would go, where you been? And say, I've been surfing, Mom. <laughs> and she was happy that you were at least Oh, yeah. My, parent, my parents really, you know, what are they going to do? <laughs> yeah. They saw that that was really my focus. Um, and I didn't really, my mind wasn't there. I'd go to school and my mind wasn't there all day. And it wasn't until the last two years of school that I, something happened, you know? I kind of fell in love with the girl who was the student body president. And I started taking interest in school and figured, oh, maybe she'd notice me if I uh, got smarter or something. So I really buckled down and really got into my studies and things and went to the student body things. And, she ended up uh, going out with a really cool Hawaiian guy, Jimmy Lucas, and, uh, you know, like one of the most handsome Hawaiian guys you'll ever meet. He ended up getting married and having kids. Oh. The electricity came back on. The power is back on. Yeah. I'll turn that TV off. Sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a windy day. I'll just explain to people. It's a, it's a windy day. And Jack lives out on a peninsula on the north of Sydney and uh, uh, maybe a tree branch came down and knocked a power line down or something. But, uh, yeah, the power just came back on. TV just came back on. He's just checking to see everything's back on. Yeah. Get some oxygen to our fish. <laughs> Get some what? Some oxygen going to our fish. <laughs> He's had no... You know, he has no, I had no air, air rider. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when the bubbler goes. Um, so we were talking about uh, your folks. My high school sweetheart. Your high school sweetheart. Not to be my sexual yeah. sweetheart. But 
I, I, I really knuckled down and studied and I kind of got a B plus average, which wasn't hard for the classes I was in, but um, I did show enough, you know, whatever to get a scholarship for art and to go do a history, study history. And I didn't jump at those. I spent a couple of years in Hawaii working with Randy Rarick in his surf shop. This was the period when the shortboard and all that was sort of happening and surfing. And to be a surfer at that time in Hawaii was, was pretty special. You know, it was, a lot was going on in board design. And I was also heavily into music and Hawaii was sort of a melting pot. Everybody wanted to come and play in Hawaii because then they'd go on vacation, you know. So we saw everybody from, you know, Cream to Jimi Hendrix to Santana to Steve Miller Band to Quicksilver Messenger Service to Jefferson Airplane. Everybody came to Hawaii at some stage or another. And we'd always go to their concerts and it was all pretty open and hippie-like, you know. Um, just sort of a magic period. Yeah, fair enough. Your father was in show business though, wasn't he? My father was in show business. Yeah, he, he worked in radio in America and then he sort of moved to Hawaii and started the first live television show in Hawaii. Uh, it was... That was in 1959, and it went right through to, gee, right through to the 70s. And it was like a talk show? It was like a, yeah, like a talk show, but it was held every Saturday morning ah. at Alamoana Center in white, sort of near Waikiki there. And they had a stage, and people would come, and they would, you know, talk to Jack McCoy, the Jack McCoy show. And like I said, told you earlier, I met everyone from Elvis Presley down who appeared on this show to promote whatever concerts or things they were on in the day. But it was really a meeting with Duke Onomoku that was one of my most, you know, memorable celebrities that I've met. I, I mean, I didn't really care about Bill Cosby, um, but boy, the Duke's going to be there, I'll be there. So my dad took me down and, and introduced me to what was really, as a young kid, as a surfer, you know, I'd never seen him surf, but just the legend of Duke Kahanamoku was, was like, you knew this was somebody in surfing. And the Duke really represented a lot of what real Hawaii is all about. He was a very humble man, very sweet, very cool, very giving you know, soft-spoken. Uh, and yet, in his day, he was the greatest swimmer of all time. You know, he was like the fastest man in the pool. When he went to try out for the Olympics in 1912, they did a couple of races in Honolulu Harbor, and they sent the time to the New York Athletic Association by telegram, and the telegram came back and said, Nobody swims that fast. Stop. <laughs> Tell Hawaiian officials to get him to swim again. Stop. 
tell them this time to use a stopwatch, not an alarm clock for time. Stop. <laughs> so then they found out that he'd swum in the harbor and they said, oh, the, the, the reason he'd done the time was because he had a current in the harbor, you know. So anyway, they took him to this pool, a place called the Notatorium. And of course, he smashed the time and he went to California and then he went on to the East Coast and he did his trial swims and every time he smashed the world record. So he and, uh, uh, not Jim Thorpe, um, the Indian, the other Indian, Olympian. I keep thinking of Jim, maybe it was Jim Thorpe. He and, and Duke traveled together to Stockholm, but because they were dark skinned, they had to travel in the back of the bus, in the back of the train, in the back of the ship, in the back of everything, you know. And when Duke got to Stockholm, he fell asleep uh, before the semifinal. And the American team was given the wrong time for it, you know, when the final, the semifinal would be. And there's an Australian there named Cecil Healy who, you know, had come all the way from Australia to swim against the Duke. And he says to the officials, we, we can't start the race. You know, Duke's not here. You got to go find the Duke. And they found him asleep in a broom closet. And it was considered at the time after the race, after Duke and Healy both swam in the final and Healy came second, uh, that Duke on the platform raised Cecil Healy's hand above his in acknowledgement that he was really the hero to him in relation to this race. And it was at that time Cecil Healy invited Duke to come to Australia. And that form of friendship and mateship and I'd like to call it building the bridge between Hawaii and Australia was formed. And two years later, Duke came out here in 1914 and spent two months swimming and surfing and igniting what I like to call Australian surf culture. But the thing that really was written about or whenever they described the Duke, it was always the humble Hawaiian impressed everybody with his, you know, aloha. And that was really what Duke would like to have been known for is the spirit of aloha. And I like to think when I shook hands with him for the first time at my father's TV show, he planted that little seed into my body to, to go on into what has become really my life's work. And then my last film that I really did was called The Deeper Shade of Blue. That to me was my chance to really show what surfing is instead of what it's become for want of better words and that all came from the duke so that's my duke story and i'm sticking to it mate it's, it's amazing <laughs> hearing you tell that um if anybody's ever in sydney if you go to freshwater beach there's a harbord or whatever they changed the name um there's a statue of the duke above the on the point on the headland because that's where the first time somebody surfed in Australia and he had a dis demonstration. That's, that's a, that's a myth. Oh, really? That really needs to be sorted and corrected Let's do it. here. And Why now, you go? But basically there had been people surfing here in Australia well before Duke. Uh, that something that people like to 
try and claim or it may have happened, but no, surfing was well and truly here before. And there was a lot of bellyboard riding in the shore break and in the whitewater. Um, there, were, there were some really good surfers actually here, but what Duke did was really show people what could be done, you know? Mm -hmm. He went right out the back and he rode a wave across the whole bay. So we assume it might've been a North swell. Um, this past January, we celebrated the 100th year anniversary of Duke's visit. And we wanted, you know, we wanted to correct that inaccuracy that he was the first person to surf in Australia. What he did was he, he came and really showed people what was possible. And he shared the spirit of Aloha and brought together, I like to think, Australia and Hawaii's friendship. And after this wonderful celebration that we had just had at Freshwater, which I was part of the committee, and you could not have asked for a better dream celebration than what we had. It was an incredible experience. I like to think that we put a rainbow over that bridge, you know, that <laughs> really gave us the you know, uh, Australians have their own form of aloha. Aloha, to understand aloha, you have to understand the essence of ha. And ha is the breath of life. So anything I have, anything I can give, anything I can share, I give to you unconditionally. And the bottom line is expecting nothing in return. Now, I like to think Australians have that same sort of attitude Real Australian, that's really Australian hospitality as well. You go anywhere up and down the coast when I first came here and people would meet me and I'm Jack the Yank and they'd take the piss out of me and call me a Yank and this and that. And I'd go, what's a Yank? And they go, a septic tank. And I go, a septic tank? Isn't that a, a sewer? And they go, yeah. So you think I'm a sewer? And they go, well, you know, it's just the way we call you, you know, Jack. So <laughs> it took me a while to get around that one. But once I did, I realized that it's just the Australian way of, of being. And, and, and it's very similar to the true Hawaiians. You know, if you go to Hawaii, sure, you can get smashed in the face by Hawaiians bummed out about you dropping in on their waves. But if you go and meet the real Hawaiian people, they will go out of their way to give you the shirt off their back or the, any, the bed or food or whatever. And, I'd like to think that that happens here in Australia as equally as well. Now, for who, from 1970 to 2004, I was an Australian resident, and I never really saw the need to become a citizen. But then they reelected George Bush in America. So the next day, I went down to the immigration office and said, "I want to become an Australian. If they're going to reelect that guy, please have me." And so, and now I'm ready to, uh, <clears throat> anyway, we won't go there. Oh, no, that's just, no, that's, we, well, we have our own version of George Bush here now in, in office. I like to think, right, it's anyway. bit, no, no, it's, it's look, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's okay because, you know, people listen to the show all over the world. And certainly when I got to the Netherlands, I'm doing a lot of work in Amsterdam at the moment and I get there, I say, I'm from Australia. They look at me, they're going, yeah, does, what's up with you guys and, carbon emissions i mean that's you know this is a this is an entire country below sea level they have a vested interest <laughs> you know like 
do you guys know what's going on? Like, can you, what's happening over there? They're like, we are as a country viewed certainly in European eyes as like, like just ignoring the rest of the world's will. And it, I think, what was it the other day? That chap, Abbott's business advisor, believes that climate oh, yeah, change a is, a, is a UN hoax designed to destroy <laughs> capitalism. Like, I'm on, look, Jack, I, you know, I, I talk about this on the show all the time. I, um, I've experienced anxiety. I've experienced depression. I've experienced how anxiety in the brain can distort how you see the world. I have a doctor I think that guy should go see because <laughs> to be in such denial of a scientific fact. Well, it's only because he... he painted himself into that corner yeah you know and he ran on that as this is my big thing and and really he got elected because nobody else was a decent alternative yeah and it was a pretty close election and whatever um but that you know when anybody asked me back in that day what who i was going to vote for i said i'm voting for the party that believes in climate change and as a father, uh, I can see it. As a surfer, when I grew up in Hawaii there on the windward side, I wouldn't hang on the weekends with my wealthy Holly neighbors. I would go get on the bus and go to my friends in, in the homestead, the Hawaiian homestead, and stay with these Hawaiian families. And this guy's uncles and cousins and friends all taught me about the ocean and the tide, and what bays the moon's in, and the weather, you know. And so you become acutely aware of nature. And to me, that's one of the great things about being a surfer. You know, you never stop learning or growing. But I got aware of it very, very early in my life. And I've seen the weather change. And I know what's going on. You don't have to tell me that, man, well, man screwed up everything else on the earth. Why not the climate, <laughs> you know? And you've done a pretty good job of it. And there has been scientific proof to show us that we need to do something about it. And how we do that is debatable, but it's recognized that there are certain steps that can be, that can be taken. And right now we're in a country that has fired all of the scientists to you know, have a better budget and whatever. So anyway, religion and politics, we might stop there, shall we? Oh, I, I, I talk about that stuff on the show all the time. You're okay, more, okay, but more, I don't, I don't want to bore people. No, 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 opinion, I, think it's, but, I think it's fine. But the, the reality is, is that we're sitting here looking at nature. And, uh, my children's children are looking toward earth with you know possibly lack of water and food shortages and without that there's no life so not looking rosy for the kids and i'm i'm sort of the guy who has been trying in my life to leave the world a better place than i found it with whatever i do and that's a fairly i think that's a fairly okay way to live and it's a way that you can do it and still be you know, economically comfortable. I think that's that's been shown and proven that it's not a choice. It's not an if or. It's an and. It can happen hand in hand. I've talked about it on the show quite a bit, and and 
Well, labor had a really good system going and it was working and it proved uh, by all the reports as soon as the new government got in that it was going well and all they had to do was keep it going and the way they went, you know. This is like blame, the, co- the, the yeah, carbon tax. Yeah. yeah, blame it on the labor party if you want to, you know, and just, but yeah. it was a good thing. And, but instead it was like, we're going to scrap it and we're going to scrap it come hell or high water, whether or not it's a good idea or not, because that's what we said we're going to do. Yeah. One of the worst things, but anyway. It's a bit. Let's, let's go back to when you were a kid. We talked about you seeing uh, the North Shore for the first time. When was the – it was a very different business model back then and, and prints were expensive. There was often only one print. When was the first time you sat in a hall and, and watched a surf maybe with a clickety projector in the back? You know, my dad took me to see my first surf movie. We lived in a place called Kailua and there was an intermediate school. Uh, and – the posters went up around town and I'm like, oh, this will be cool. Can't wait. So I begged my dad to take me. And we got there about, you know, an hour early. And uh, we helped Bruce set up the chairs. Bruce Brown. Bruce Brown was there. It was a Bruce Brown movie. It was Slippery When Wet, his first movie. And we helped him set up the chairs and we all go outside and a few people started to arrive. A couple of my school friends. And then Bruce's wife started to sell the tickets. So we went up and bought a ticket. And then about, you know, 20 minutes before the show, Bruce opened the doors and he stood at the door and he took your ticket. He greeted you. Hey, how are you going? Thanks for coming. Gee, looking forward to this. You know, he had a little chatty on the way in, so we all go in. And then when everybody was there, I think it started like, well, it seemed like an hour late, but it was probably only 20 minutes or something to get everybody in there and, and the place was packed and this guy goes up and he introduces the movie. He's got a little microphone and he, hi, I'm Bruce Brown. This is my movie and thanks for coming. And the first half, we're going to go to California and we're going to see this and that. And we're going to da da So uh, sit back and we'll, we'll get the, the show rolling here in a minute. And put the microphone down and he ran to the back of the state, back of the hall and he turned the lights off. He started the projector, then he ran up to the front, and he started the, the tape recorder. But back then, we tried to have him sync with the picture. And occasionally, you'd see him speed it up or slow it down or stop it or stick his finger on it to slow, <laughs> slow this thing from taking up to kind of keep the picture and the music in sync with each other, the different sequences that he had. And he was so engaging and so funny and so cool and so entertaining. You know, it was like, wow, bitching. You know? <laughs> and then the first half intermission comes up and he runs down the back of the hall, turns the lights on, and we all file out. And we're out there in the outside the auditorium, all stoked and excited and gaudy. And, and you always ended your first half you're just before your intermission with like a Waimea sequence or a wipeout sequence so everyone goes out amped yeah and, and totally psyched right so we <laughs> we're all out there excited and then okay we're gonna start the second half so we all pile in and he goes up on stage and he gives away a couple of door prizes hang on to your ticket stub you know because he pulls out a lucky door prize you might have got a bar of wax or a poster or something right then he Tells you a little about 
the second half and he runs down the back, turns the lights off, starts a projector, runs up the front, does the same thing again. And then the show finished. And all I can say is, is that I was so touched, moved and inspired by that experience that I like meeting the Duke. I'd like to think that was a pivotal point in my life that a little seed was planted into me that I want to be like that guy. I want to be able to share the stoke to people. And we helped Bruce clean up the hall. He talked to us after the show. He was just like one of the boys. He was so nice and so cool. And then uh, I went around the whole town the next day telling all the shop owners that I had been instructed to go get all the posters down and I did that, and then I took them to school the next day and sold them all for a quarter. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> entrepreneurial, even back then. <laughs> and and that and that kind of I guess got back to Bruce or somehow. And then the next time he came, he actually had a friend get in touch with me, and he sent me the posters and had me put a few up around town with with some of the other guys that had been doing it. And that was kind of my poster Grammy career start. Um, and then that kind of went on for a couple of years. And then as I got a little bit older, I think around when I was 18 in my last year of high school, I met McGilvery Freeman, Jim Freeman and Greg McGilvery, who were showing their first movie. Uh, in between that time, there was obviously John Severson movies, Bud Brown movies, you know, legendary early first surf film people like Grant Roloff, et cetera. But Greg McGilvery and Jim Freeman were these two California guys who had combined forces after making their own first surf movies. And one was very artistic and one was very technical. And they made this great combination. And I went on their opening night and Greg was sort of manning the first door. It was right next to the ticket office and there was another door open and that was where Jim was and no one was going to his door. So I ended up just talking to him. And to make a long story short, I became quite friendly with those guys and became their poster Grimmy. And then I started getting them to send the movies to me and I would distribute the films for them. Me and Randy would distribute surf movies uh, for those two guys. McGilvery Freeman um, went on to make a great surfing movie called Five Summer Stories, which I showed here in Australia, which is jumping ahead a little bit of the story, but I came here in 1970 and then started showing their films. But after that film in 1972, they went into IMAX films and they're like, their company is the, the Kings of IMAX. Right. They've made over 40 films in IMAX and all very professional. And, and they're the Kings sort of, you might say of IMAX. Jim unfortunately passed away in 1973 in a helicopter accident. But Greg has still kept his name, and, and McGillivray Freeman Films is still intact today. But they were the ones who really inspired me to actually, you know, have the belief that I could make my own film. What was the first one that you? What was the first time that you went? Oh, here I go. I'm going to go do it. <clears throat> well. Basically, I came here in 1970, and I fell in love with it, and then I got a job showing their films. 
around Australia with uh, Peter Troy and uh, Paul Wigsig's company. And then I uh, did that for like four years. And then I moved to Victoria. I thought it's going to be a restaurateur. So I started a restaurant and I thought it's going to surf all day and do a few meals at night. And little did I realize that you got up at six in the morning and prepared all the food. And at four o'clock, you went home, took a shower and went back and served the food and booted everybody out at one in the morning and got up at six and did the whole thing again. And then I had a skiing accident and a friend of mine who I'd shown surfing films with, Dick Hool, um, as part of my rehabilitation, put a camera in my hand and said, we're going to make our own movie. <laughs> and so that's what I did. In 1975, we made Tubular Swells and it's been 25 films since. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned uh, that you went to school with some pretty legendary names in surfing. Did you keep in touch with those guys when you came to Australia? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, it was started the kind of the pro surfing scene a little mm. bit in the early 70s. Uh, Australia had a couple of really great contests. They had the Bells Contest. And then in the early 70s, they started what was called the Coke Surfabout, yeah. which Coca-Cola sponsored here in Sydney. And, you know, the Hawaiian surfers would come out, Reno and Jerry and Hackman and Barry and, you know, all the legends. And uh, it was after one of those trips in 1973 that I took Jerry Lopez up to Bali, where I'd been the year before. And... We had an amazing time, and that was the start of his love affair with Indonesia and also narrow discovery of a lot of places that are now, you know, very well known. Like, we were first surfers to go to G-Land and first surfers to surf Padang and, you know, early surfers to go here, there, and everywhere. And it was, uh, you know, I'm not talking about the good old days. I'm just talking about how it'll never be again. Yeah. Because <laughs> Kuda was a coconut grove and a fishing village when we went up there. And now I consider it a Fellini movie. It's like this creature feature that you just go, oh, my God, what have they done? You know. But you go there and the people, the people are still the same. The Balinese are so beautiful and cool and happy and loving and hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Pretty, pretty special. Did you feel like... I don't know, did you feel like Shackleton paddling out? Like we're the first guys to do this? Well, the first... Like how did you even know? Because you can't see these things. People would have had to tell you, well, that's where the waves are. Well, no, no. We, you know, Albie had been to Uluwatu the year before. Uh So we'd gone up there. But we'd sat there at Uluwatu on all the big swells looking down the coast toward Kuta, and you could see these the backs of these waves peeling at the next point down. And we were just too lazy to walk down there and have a look at it. And finally, one day, you know, we did. And we filmed uh, the first day of Padang surf in Tubuli Swells. It was only a small day, but it was a day that we had to just go have a look, you know, and physically see what's there, you know. And after that, we kind of, figured out that we needed to take the blinkers off and start, <laughs> you know. We, we were just so thrilled with Uluwatu. Uluwatu, for us, coming from Hawaii, was clear water, reef break, high tide peak, low tide, this racetrack, big swell, big long faces to ride, big long walls. You have to remember, too, that those first couple of years, there were no leg ropes, so if you lost your board, you you do this marathon swim, you'd have to, uh, you had to have some sort of waterman skills in your repertoire to survive that sort of surf. You know, today it's a whole nother deal. You go out there and they got, you know, two months of surfing and they're paddling into the wave and they fall off and pull their board in there in the lineup in two seconds. Well, back then you lost your board, you were gone. You left the lineup nice and empty for the good guys who didn't lose their boards to ride a few ways before you got back out there. And the next time you tried to hold on to your board so you wouldn't have to go swim for it. So they're waterman skills that, that, you know, I grew up with that I think is really a bit of a shame that a lot of surfers uh, have never had to experience any of that. It goes back to those things where I learned about the wind and the tide and, you know, to be able to dial up a surf report that's going to tell you exactly what the surf's doing and how big it's going to be and at what time to be there. Um, doesn't take any skill to use your finger to dial up the phone number, you know, <laughs> to get that information. So really, once again, I'm not trying to say it was the good old days or, you know, how... This is how it terrific was. that was. It's just the way it'll never be again. It was when I see those first films of yours, I get the sense that you guys were as much surfers as you were filmmakers, as you were somewhat like kind of Indiana Jones. Like you, you really are. You're going to places that only a few generations of you know Westernized uh, um, contact. What were some of the things that you saw back then that you that might have curled your toes a bit among the the local culture? 
Well, hmm. Indonesia obviously was a big shock to the system, <laughs> you know, with the wrong dances and, you know, their intensity of their worship and their spirituality, um, their beliefs, you know. One day we went out to Uluwatu after it had been raining all night, horrible storms. And we got out there and the Balinese kids met us at the track where they carry our boards and they, they say, oh, lightning bolt hit the temple last night. Lightning bolts, bad luck. Don't go surfing today. Don't go surfing, you know. Lightning bolt hit the temple. Well, we've come all the way out here. We might as well go down and look out. So we go down there and we have a look at it. Pretty good. It's overcast. There's a river roaring through the little creek from the water from the night before that's made getting into the cave really dangerous. It's like a huge waterfall next to the little bamboo pole that you climb down. Anyway, Jerry was going out. So I followed him out with a camera. I uh, remember back then at high tide, you just had to guess when you thought there was a lull in the sets and then you would jump in and paddle out of this cave and you'd see eight foot of white water going by, you know, and you just go, you go down the coast. So anyway, you, you do your big wash down, the, down to the, down toward Padang, and then you'd swim all the way. I would swim all the way up, and Jerry would go back out. I got out there, and he uh, he said, "You know, those kids were pretty adamant that we didn't go out here today. <laughs> you know, we better be careful." And he took off on a wave, and I clicked off one shot, and he went past me, and the wave closed out on him, and he broke his board, and he had this big lightning bolt on the deck of. Thing, you know as was his trademark yeah and so it was like i told you <laughs> <laughs> and uh we crawled up there with our tails between our legs you know and that that kind of you know if you didn't believe in the balinese spirits before then that really kind of proved it to me <laughs> yeah know? that was like you dumb howlies, you know. <laughs> it is interesting, though, how that kind of exposure, that kind of spirituality came back with so many surfers that had visited that area. And the exposure to that sort of belief, mysticism, uh, connection with the earth came back to people who had gone from Coolangatta and they come back with hair just a little bit longer and talking about, you know, spirits and beliefs and meditations and things like that. It's, it's kind of, I think it's kind of interesting that those sorts of things in some ways came back to Australia through surfers. Oh yeah, for sure. Absolutely. One too many mushies under the belt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we, we do. And you're talking about these, these, these breaks. I'll talk about them in the intro. I'll describe what, what it is to be in that, that kind of surf, but we revere and admire and, call heroes these surfers that paddle fearlessly into these walls of water breaking in three or four feet of reef. 
you're out there with a pair of fins on lugging what I can only assume is a huge, unwieldy, not very hydrodynamic <laughs> camera. You're, you're risking your life just as much being out there to shoot, aren't you? You know, there are a lot of, we'll call them hazards and risks that you take with the, you know, 25 pound camera uh, with nothing but a pair of fins on out into some serious water that's moving in all kinds of different directions. However, once again, I grew up in Hawaii and as part of your education before leg ropes, you learned how to let the water push you around. And I call it Jack McCoy's lazy school of surf proficiency, where you jump in and you know where and how to go. It only took me like a year and a half at Uluwatu trying to swim out of there with my camera and getting washed all the way down to Padang. I mean, like it's probably 200 yards down before the waves let you out in this gap between the end of the reef at Uluwatu and Padang. And then I would have to spend a half an hour swimming back up to the peak where everyone was surfing. And, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at how the water's moving and where the waves are. And I spotted these fishermen going down this little monkey trail further closer to the temple. And one day I went up there and I could get down this little trail and there was a little teeny tiny little beach at low tide and there was a rock and just in behind sort of the south side of the rock where the waves first crashed was a little tiny area that I could climb off the rock into the water. And I noticed that there was a current that would take me to a rip that broke just the south side of where the peak was. And there's actually quite a good wave that breaks across that but in between sets, if I timed it properly, I could jump in and let the current take me to this other current that went out behind the break huh. that would take me right out behind it. And it was ended up called Jumpin' Jack's Jump Off Point. <laughs> and I used it for years, you know, to be able to get out there. And, and you just learn to work with the water. The biggest thing that I have continuously remind myself on really good days is to stay focused because often you sit there and it's just waves are so pretty you just go into a little daydream and just start going wow that's pretty you know and uh shut up get back to work you know focus on what you're doing um on big days it's easy to get overawed by what's around you so you learn how to just stay focused. And... I'll never forget. I remember we met here. No, I think it was the first time I ever, I ever met you. You were on the back of a jet ski in the channel at Chopu, and you knew uh, the cameraman I was with, Michael Jackson. Oh, Jacko. Jacko lives <laughs> up the street from here. Yeah. And you, you, you shot away on the jet ski, and he's like, that was Jack McCoy. I was like, that was Jack McCoy. 
I was very excited that it was you. But I was getting little a bit did sick. you know. <laughs> I was getting it's a... just one of the good old boys. <laughs> I um I I was getting a bit seasick in the boat. I remember Luke Egan told me just jump out of the water and go for a swim. If you're getting seasick, that's that's what you do because he's sitting in these little boats. And we're right by the channel. And so I put my fins on and I'd been body surfing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So I knew my way around water. But I will never forget um, uh, Brian Kealana, who was in charge of the water patrol that day, just whistled and pointed with his finger. And I looked to the right and where I thought the horizon was, was now about a good eight to ten metres above where I thought where it should have been. (laughs) And it was the first time in my life, Jack, that I've ever swum uphill. Right. And I'll never forget that. And but only twenty to thirty meters to my left is where this London tube tunnel-sized thing was exploding, <clears throat> like an Olympic swimming pool-sized amount of water was just exploding onto this reef that was nearly draining dry. You're in that at at in Tahiti. Like there's that. I was when Jack said, "Oh, that's when Jacko said that's Jack McCoy." I knew you from the Led Hamilton film. Uh, about about Chopu. What was it like for you when you and Led first went out there to like? Did he say you got to come with me, Jack? We have got to go shoot this, or did you say how did how did that come together? Well, what I think you're telling me is that you got caught inside. I didn't get caught inside, but I got right. a sense of twenty to thirty yards that way to yeah. my left was absolute death, and not you, even twenty yards. Not even. <laughs> but you're you're in it. You're yeah, in the middle of that. Chopu, especially when you jump in there and go in the water, is, is that everyone's sort of sitting there, and as a swimmer, you're sitting in what you think is a safe place. What happens is that when the wave comes, the water actually draws you into the impact zone. There's a, sort of like a current that, that keeps pe- pulling you in. And it only takes once to get picked off there before you realize you don't want to do that again. You become very focused and aware. When I'm swimming and shooting at a chopu, my senses are like on overload because it's so easy to lose your positioning. You know, after years of experience, you can look down on the reef and see where you are. I know about where I am by certain rocks or a certain crack or a certain crevice. And it's it's very very easy to you know get in trouble in some of these places um i was invited to go to tahiti through a company called oxbow and we'd spent two weeks there filming and we got a great sequence we'd had incredible surf we'd surfed chopu a few times and the night we were all supposed to leave there's only one flight out of tahiti a week to hawaii and to australia and we all had been booked on this flight and we kind of got wind that there might be a big swell coming the next day. So it was a pretty big commitment to, you know, when you're in those foreign countries and changing your ticket, it's not like calling up and And you do it. You actually have to go to the office. And and let's be serious. Chopu is a, it's a, it's a collection of shacks at the end of a road. It's not like it's a, you know, a giant, place with you know 7-elevens and satellite phones and all that kind of it's in the middle of nowhere but anyway we it it was a big deal to to decide to stay another day which meant we'd have to stay another week well bentley what do you think 
so we uh, we got up the next morning and I was driving with our Tahitian guide Poto and he was like ambling. He was like going, God, it's big today. It's big today. And we got out there and Laird and his tow partner were watching it from the beach and we could see these explosions going on out there and it was still really early and we shooted down to our little boat ramp a house had a place where we could launch our skis from and we go there and we were all ready to go and then Poto had locked his keys in his car with his sunglasses in it. And because he was being sponsored by Oakley, he knew it was gonna be an important day to make sure he had his sunglasses on for his photo incentives. Oh, yeah. I've met Poto. He's the yeah. he's the guy. He's yeah. the man, right? He's the guy. So anyway, yeah. he uh so Laird and I got off our skis and we got a coat hanger. And you can imagine there's so much adrenaline and there's so much testosterone going off in this little car park between all of us and the surf pounding and, you, and the sun's coming up and it's like this is going to be the day of days and we're all kind of amping and Poto throws this monkey wrench at us <laughs> and with surgical precision Poto had like his keys were like a tennis ball size of, of of keys you know it wasn't like we're just gonna be able to slip a key out the window anyway with the skill of a surgeon and i guess you could say it takes a thief laird busted into poto's car <laughs> and uh got the keys and off we went and before we <clears throat> we got out there and then we formed a circle all our boats and our skis and everything and we said a little prayer and we put the Hawaiian tea leaf on the back of the ski, which is a form of respect and offering. And then we all reminded each other to stay focused and to watch for each other and to make sure everybody knew what was going on. And Laird went out and he missed his first wave. Um, Nelson didn't have him in just the right spot. And he really wanted this first wave because you just want to flush your adrenaline out of your system. You want to get that first one under your belt. And he pulled out of this wave because he realized he was in the wrong spot. And we could hear him yelling at Nelson. He was so pissed. He was like, just going off, right? And I'm watching this wave. And if Laird had ridden that wave, you know, he might not have been surfing the rest of the day. <laughs> it had drained so heavily and so shallow it was not the wave to even try to be your first wave so anyway laird rode a few waves after that and then a couple of really decent sized waves came through and laird over the period of about an hour and a half took a couple of pretty serious wipeouts where he got caught too far behind and one where it clipped him and he said that the you know, instead of slamming him into the reef, it sort of skated him over the reef. It just got sort of like, and it was just little slaps, you know, little. And uh, later that afternoon, uh, when we came in, his shorts were torn, his 
uh, rash vest was torn in the shoulder, just where he just slightly touched the reef. He had these like eight scrapes on him that were just a miracle in essence, in the sense that it was just a little reminder that what could have happened, you know. Anyway, he then came out of the water and he started towing other guys. Uh, I'd been having problems with my cameras. I had these high-speed cameras that had just been converted from 16 millimeter to super 16. So instead of having two claws to pull the film down, it only had one. And it was really critical the way I loaded them, and I was just learning how to load them. And if I didn't load them properly, they'd jam, so I'd have to go back to the boat and reload the camera. Anyway, I said to him, I said, look, would you mind, I got my cameras loaded, would you mind going out and getting a couple more big ones? And within five minutes, he'd ridden those two waves. Um, and I was there to film it. And that's one of those things of where you go, gee, I'm, you know, glad I wasn't overawed and I was in focus and I was doing my job. Poto had me on the back of his ski and I have these high speed cameras that don't have any, it's called reflex, which means you can look through something and actually see what you're looking through the lens. Well, they're World War II Army gun cameras that shoot at a high speed, and I've learned how to point and shoot with them. But the way I've learned to point and shoot with them is that when I learned that dolphins have 11 cameras in each eye, they can look at 11 different things with one eye and focus, and you know they have twice the size brains that we do. I, I realized with my high-speed camera that didn't have a reflex that I have two eyes. I'm gonna to learn to shoot with my right eye. That keeps the, the camera in focus. And with my left eye, I'm gonna watch what's happening. And I'm gonna have this discussion with myself about do I swim in, do I go further out? Do I wanna keep this shot? Do I want the lip to land on my head? Do I want, how do I wanna do this with the left eye? And the right eye just keeps that exact framing that I want pointed the camera at exactly the, the right spot. So in this way, the left eye is telling the right eye, oh my God, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And the right eye is saying, leave me alone. I got to do my job. And the left eye is going, yeah, but you can't believe what this wave is doing. Yeah, I know. Good for you. Leave me alone. Hey, can you do me a favor and just have a little peek and see what you think? And I'm going, leave me alone hey, you have to have a look and confirm what I'm seeing is what I'm seeing. This little conversation's going on as he's riding this wave, and the most critical part of the wave, I took my eye off the camera like, ah, and went straight back to it. And I kept shooting, and I confirmed that what I saw was what I saw for the left eye. And that night as we're having a beer in the most critical part of that wave, Laird said to me, I knew I was in a bad spot by the look on your face. I'm on a jet ski inside the reef, looking up at this thing. No boats or anything near. Poto has what he calls me on the box seat, which is right inside the reef. And Laird, with all this going on around him, with so much adrenaline, they say when you have a car accident, everything goes in slow motion. Well, that's because you think you're using all of your brain instead of only a quarter of it. 
and he could see me down the end there on the back of Podoski with this horrified look on my face in one second that I went, ah, and looked back. You know, and if you look at the shot, it's a kind of a famous shot. That's probably one of the most famous waves in surfing. Um, you'll see at the most critical point, the, the picture dips 200 frames in a second, just dips, and then it goes back to, to being focused. And that's that one second that I took the thing off, took my <laughs> eye off the picture. Right. But, you know, that, that's a great story, mate. That's such a great story, but to hear you describe it, you really are, you're putting yourself in, in harm's way to get a lot of those oh. shots. If I fell off there, <laughs> you know, I'm, I got a lot of trust in my Tahitian driver. Do you ever think at the end of the day, do you ever look back and go, that was very, very close or, or do you, when you're in the moment, are you just like, I'm all about the shot, I'm all about the framing? You stay focused. Yeah. You really stay focused. I'll tell you a great story. My, I had this young fellow lived up on the Central Coast named Woody. And he worked with me as my sort of all-around apprentice. I um, met him last time I was up here. Did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, he was editing here. Yeah, yeah. Woody. Anyway. Just a grom, super cool kid, good little surfer, doing all this stuff with me. And I'm teaching him how to be a good cameraman. And on the first shoot that we're going to go to Hawaii, um, to the island of Kauai to shoot Terry Chun, there's going to be a big swell coming. And I said, well, shit, I better get you to know how to drive on the jet ski with me. So I take my jet ski out here the day before we're going to Hawaii. And I take it around the back and I take it to Palm Beach and the surf one foot. And I get him to sit side saddle and I say, now you lean your shoulder into my small of my back and you push on the side of the rail and you hold the camera steady. And I'm just going to, you just stay focused looking on the thing. And I gave him like a one afternoon, one hour lesson. Next day we fly to Hawaii or that night we flew to Hawaii all night flight. We land in Honolulu at seven o'clock. We fly to Kauai nine o'clock. Terry picks us up 10 o'clock. We're going down the Nepali coast. I'm on the ski with Woody and our camera. We're going with Nelson and, and Terry and a couple of guys. On, and it's 20 to 25 foot swell. My God. Right? And we, we filmed, you know, we did some shots where we're sitting off the break. And then that whole afternoon, we went down to this one spot, which was like a 25 foot A-frame that peaked up perfectly. Just the whole swell focused on this one part of the reef. The direction is right. And this huge peak would pitch and have a short right on it, but then a big, long left wall. So what I was doing is when they would go to take off on the wave, I would come around from the right, and this giant peak would come, and these guys are right there in the hook, and I'm right underneath them, and we're running all the way into the channel getting these shots. Like a tracking shot on a wave. It's a tracking Amazing. shot. Amazing. And we're doing, and it's like, it's a serious, it's a, you know, a 40 foot face wave. Okay, we call it 20, 25 foot. It's a 40, 40 50 foot face wave, right? It's a, it's a lot of water. It's a lot of water oh, and the lips landing right behind us, right? So anyway, that afternoon, the camera stuff's up and we've got so much stuff already. I say to Woody, hang on, 
let me just give you a ride and, and show you what we've been doing. And the whole time he's been sitting there in the back of the ski, looking and filming, getting all these great shots. So this time I put the camera in the little, in the little hole and he's sitting there and we take off. And I have it where the lip of this 20 foot wave is landing on the back of my sled, jet ski sled, you know, and just put, sort of pushing us along. That's how close we are. And he was having a heart attack when he saw where he had been sitting all day long without having a clue what was going on around him. I'll never forget the look on his face. He was in shock, you know, but as they say in the motor world, there's no substitute for horsepower. <laughs> you just hope nothing breaks down at that critical moment. But yeah, I spent, you know, I bought my own ski after driving with the best jet ski drivers in the world telling them to slow down, speed up, whatever. And then I just went and bought my own ski and drew it myself and put my assistant on the back and say, point the camera at the surfer and was able to get those shots. At the end of the deeper shade of blue, you'll see some of the tracking shots that Woody and I did together that I'm pretty happy with. You, um, you mentioned earlier at the start of a conversation, but I think it's important we talk about it. You've always had uh, a deep passion for music and your relationship with music is one that kind of fascinates me to the point where you, a lot of surf films use music that is, you know, I remember seeing early surf films that I saw were bands I'd never heard of, but the idea was that we'll put you on a surf film, you get exposure, you give it to music for free. But you tend to use music that is somewhat hard to come by and if not very expensive for, for licensing, you've, you've got a quite a commitment to making sure the tracks are a tip top. Why is that? Music's the emotion of your images. I can cut a sequence to a song and then I can put another song underneath it and the track, the images will take on a totally different feel or look or whatever. So the music, you know, I love the early surf movie music. Bruce Brown had a guy named Bud Shank, who was a very famous jazz musician in the day. And he'd sync the music really well with it. Um, Seberson did a little bit of that. McGilvery Freeman did it really well. Uh, in early 1970, a friend of mine named Peter French made a movie called Sea Dreams where he actually cut the vision to the music, which was a big breakthrough. You know, each time the lip landed at a pipeline, Santana went, da na na, boom, you know, da na na, boom. And it, it just had this real impact with the picture. It enhanced the picture so incredibly. I also like to use the music as a form of storytelling, the words and lyrics, you know. Coldplay at the end of A Deeper Shade of Blue, when I was king of the world, you know, and that's how Terry Chun feels when he's riding those waves on his foil board. So to me, that sort of music is, is really incredible. Um, when I first made my second surf movie, Storm Riders, we really went out of our way to use all Australian music. And at the time, um, Trying to clear those tracks was not easy, but 
a friend of mine knew the Finn brothers. And so he introduced us to Tim and Tim helped introduce us to the manager who said, these guys are cool, help them get the music. Um, I went to a minute work concert on the Gold Coast and went backstage and introduced myself to the band before they broke and said, hey, I want to use you. And they said, yeah. And they put me in touch with the manager and allowed it to happen. Um, and you have to remember, before that, all surf movies used to rip the music off. <laughs> they, never paid, they never paid the musicians. And so we, we did our best to you know, do the right thing. And that, that was really the film that, that started the, you know, doing all the music stuff mm. really right and everything. I think that was the thing that really stood out for me about Blue Horizon when you had that, that Foo Fighters. Well, but the... Yeah, I got I, I I went to the Manny Bar when the first Foo Fighter concert would play to Australia and introduced myself to Dave and you know they remembered me when we asked for the song and the manager said yeah okay we'll help these guys out with their surf movie and and you know Dave even to this day will tell people that you know we helped them gain an audience in Australia, you know, which I find really humbling, but um, we did, you know, and when we took Storm Riders to America, Minute Work were just breaking, and so were Split Ends, and we know what little bit we did to contribute to, you know, the surfing tribe is rather big, mm. and surfers are trendsetters, and they do pick up on things. And so, you know, there was a fair exchange in giving us the rights to use some of their music for not that big an expense or for what we could afford. Um, then what's going on? And, but no, music to me is really critical, really important. I pick all the songs in my music. Occasionally, someone will point one out to me. I'm not going to say I pick every one of them. I shouldn't say that. I, I pick most of them. When I make a movie, I listen to like 500 songs that make my ears bleed, trying to find the right one or the right emotion. I, I, <laughs> I just showed my movie Blue Horizon the other night at the Bondi Bucket List, and I'm sitting there going, God, this, I haven't watched it in like 10 years or something. And I'm going, this movie's pretty good, and gee, the soundtrack's hot, you know? <laughs> and you just sort of forget the effort that you put into it, you know, by the time you finish a movie and you premiere it, you know, you hope not to watch it again for, because <laughs> you've watched it 500 times, you're yeah. sick of it, you know. But the reality is, is that the music to me is 50% of the, the movie going experience. The picture is 50%, the, the music's the other 50. And the opportunity to work with some of my images and some great artists is a real honor for me. It's a pleasure. Iggy Pop to Dairy Kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've been talking for a while. I know, and I'm really grateful for your time. I've only got a few more things I would like to talk to you about, and that's the, the relationship and the trust that happens between uh, a filmmaker and a surfer. It's, it's got to be there. They've gotta, you've got to trust that they won't run over your head. They've got to trust that you're going to get the shot. 
and you, you have this really interesting connection and a very interesting relationship. I'm sure that after a while, you would have a shorthand, particularly with someone you've known for a long time, like, like Jerry Lopez, for example. For, so if, if it's okay, I'd just like to you know, ask, what, what's it like to work with someone in that kind of partnership in the water? When there is so much at stake. When I, when I, like when I first started to work with, say, someone like Rasta, um, I spend a bit of time watching how they surf from the land before I jump in the water with them. And then when I do jump in the water with them, I'm watching, you know, with that other eye all the time, <laughs> you know, I'm, oh, I'm always kind of watching where they move and where they go. And you learn to, to read the lines that they take. Um, Andy drew a different line than Rasta. Uh, Rasta drew a different line than Aki. Aki drew a different line than Sonny. You know, you, it's sort of like, I guess you'd call it a sixth sense. And it's that waterman skill that I learned early in the piece to be observant and focus and watch and look and, and understand how the wave's breaking and where I want to be on the wave to get the shot and how I want to get the shot. It also helps that I'm an editor so that I go out and I don't shoot the same thing over and over again. I'm, I go, okay, I got that shot. Now I'm going to try and get something different. So in the editing room, I'm not going to bore my audience. Uh, maybe one shot I'll sit in the water. Another time I'll sit on a boogie board to get myself up about eight inches. Of a di and the difference in angle is radical. You know, you don't notice it because you're just watching the movie and there's a nice shot there. But I know what it took to get that shot. And the trust that I have to have, uh, I mean, I let them know that if we're in the tube together and you come flying at me, I'll actually stick this camera out into the wave face that's right in their path. And I, ha and I tell them, whatever you do, just know I won't hit you. I'll always pull it. And I know how fast they're traveling. I know how quick that split second's going to come. But to get that last little bit of shot, I'll stick the camera out. I'll take my eye off of it. And I'll stick it out to get that the lip going over just that, you know, 200 frames a second. It might give you an extra four seconds of the shot. So I'm looking for that little extra bit. I'll stick it out there. And last second, I'll pull this thing in. Now, if they ran into that with their head, it would kill them. So there is a certain amount of trust that they have to have. And then I always say, you just make sure you go past me. And then I'll, if I'm going to hang for that last second of the shot, more than likely I'll go up and go over the falls and get smashed into the bottom. And that's where the right eye and the left eye have the conversation. We're getting a good shot here. And the left eye is going, do I really want to keep this shot longer? Do I really want to go over the falls for this shot? Is this shot worth it? Yes, okay go for it, up and over the falls, boom, off the bottom, hold the camera, tuck the camera in, into my stomach so that's not going to get smashed and flood the housing and <laughs> lose a shot and, and go into a ball and just roll with the punches. 
that you'll find. Clearly, you know, sitting here in this beautiful house, looking out over the, the ocean, that kid sitting in the intermediate school hall who decided this is what I want to do with my life. It sounds like you, this is what you did with your life. Share the stoke. Yeah, man. Share the stoke. So what would you say to someone who's perhaps not going to get a Super 16 camera strapping into water housing and paddle into Chopu, but is wanting to pursue that vision that they have when they were a kid, whether it be to be the best accountant or the best homemaker or the best whatever. What would you say to that person who's listening? Just keep your dreams alive. Dave Rastovich's dad says it best in Blue Horizon when he goes, think it, feel it, do it. <laughs> you know, think about it here. Put it in your heart. Execute it. And don't be afraid to, to make mistakes, you know. I love the, the, the saying somebody told me this early in, my, in the piece, and that is experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. You know, and that made a big, big impression upon me as a young man, because to me, when we're first starting to film, you know, you're shooting with film that costs $100 a roll, and then it costs another $100 to process it, and then it costs another $100 to make a work print so you could even look at it. And that was only two minutes and 50 seconds worth of vision. And if your exposure was not within, you know, half a stop, it was too dark. If it was under overexposed, it was too light by half a stop. So you had to learn how to read a light meter and take your thing. It got so good at it that I was able to hold my hand to the sun to know what f-stop it was because that's, how much film you shot and with, with the experience you, you got that but there were great rides and great shots and incredible rolls of film that were unusable because i'd made that one little mistake it broke my heart i remember the first day i shot with my new high-speed water camera didn't have a reflex at padang the surf is perfect lopez and rory russell out by themselves and i chopped their heads off on every shot I never made that mistake again, but it broke my heart. Um, and all I had to say was, well, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. So, you know, challenge yourself. And I always gave myself a one-year, two-year, and a five-year goal of what I wanted to do in my life, especially with my filmmaking. I never wanted to make the same movie twice. Every movie that I made... I always challenge myself with another part of filmmaking that I hadn't done before, whether it be learning how to color grade or how to uh, work with a crew, trying to have other cameramen around. You have to remember for years, I was the only cameraman in all my films. I shot every shot, you know? Then when I started working on some of the Billabong films, I had, I could direct five other cameramen you know, but I had to learn how to direct them. So I made that my focus. And 
I would line up all their shots in the editing room and look at everybody's shot from every angle and I would learn. So the next time I went and did that shoot with five guys, I'd know to place that guy a little bit higher or that guy a little bit lower or that guy a little further up or that guy a little bit further down. And you, the beauty with every movie is no matter, like I worked on Deep and Shade of Blue for five years and it's still only 92% done for me. You know, the day I make that 100% movie is the day I'll quit. None of them are ever going to be. At some point, you have a saying that films are not finished, they're abandoned. And as a filmmaker, you have to take that on because you can keep working it and reworking it. And you get to the point where you just lose the plot, you know. By the time you make a movie like The Deepest Shade of Blue, which is an hour and a half long, I may have watched the movie 500 times, start to finish. And every time I do, I put a different hat on my head and be a different person to try and ask myself, is this person enjoying this or is this person asking questions? Is that little old lady going, why am I watching this? Or did I understand that or whatever? And if I raise a question, I'll write it down, I'll go back and fix it. And you can keep doing that until the cows come home. At some point, you just got to go, that's it, goodbye, and send it out there. You spent, you spent a life, a life in, in the ocean. What has being in the ocean and spending a life in the ocean taught you? Taught me how insignificant a little speck I am in this, you know, this amazing ball that's spinning in space faster than we can even imagine going in circles and, you know, just a little inconspicuous speck in this huge, amazing, beautiful planet that unless we start looking after it a little better, it ain't gonna be the way it is or the way it needs to be to, you know, to work. I've been to Hawaii twice. From what I know, aloha means both hello and goodbye. So when we say aloha at the end of a visit, what does it mean? Well, re aloha really is a greeting. You know, in Tahiti, it's called yarana. And it's the ha. The ha is the breath of life. So someone's walking down the road and you go yarana or aloha. You know, anything I have, anything I can share, anything I can give, I give to you unconditionally, expecting nothing in return. And that's the true Polynesian spirit that I'm trying to share and live and, and you know, give to people. I'm at the stage now where all I want to do is give. If there's sincere interest from some kid who wants to know about photography, I'll tell him everything he wants to know. <laughs> it's a it's an honor or privilege for me to do it to share it that's the best gift you can give to just about anybody it's the duke the duke gave me the spirit and i've got to run with it I'm doing the best i can jack i'm so grateful for this time thanks for having me in your home too easy thanks man i'm going to take your photo okay Aloha. Aloha. <laughs>
And that was Jack McCoy. You can find him on Instagram at Jack McCoy Aloha. J-A-C-K-M-C-C-O-Y Aloha. Uh, you can find all his films online. I would recommend uh, Tubular Swells and, of course, A Deeper Shade of Blue, his most recent one. But also check out Blue Horizon, which is a very interesting study of Dave Rastovich and Andy Irons to surface from the opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, yeah, he's an exceptional filmmaker, Jack. And uh, I couldn't be more grateful for, for his time and for him explaining the spirit of Aloha, which he absolutely shows. He's a very generous man. And um, I, I hope you got something out of this. If you did, the best thing you could possibly do it would be to share it with someone, let someone know about this show, show them how to download it on their phone and introduce them to the show. That would be the best thing you could do for me. So I've got to go. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of this show for so long. I look forward to speaking with you next week. Until then, be kind, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 